Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We have real estate private equity entrepreneur Rob Beardsley here with us today. Rob Beardsley is the founder and principal of Lone Star Capital, a fast-growing real estate investment firm owning and operating over 2,500 multifamily units in Texas. Lone Star Capital delivers superior risk-adjusted returns in excess of 30% since 2018. Through diligent sourcing and selection, vertically integrated property management, and rigorous reporting. To date, Rob has acquired over $350 million of multifamily properties. He's, invalu- he's evaluated thousands of opportunities using proprietary underwriting models and published two books, Structuring and Raising Debt and Equity for Real Estate and The Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions, which is currently the number one book on multifamily underwriting. Rob, thanks so much for coming on today. It's greatly appreciated. Yep. Great to be here. So before we get into it, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So where are you from and why did you get into the industry? I grew up in Silicon Valley, California. I actually grew up in a real estate family. So my parents ran a residential brokerage firm, buying and selling luxury homes for their clients. Uh, They ran the business from home. So I was around phone calls, deal making, all that fun stuff on the real estate side. But it was all single family business. So they did brokerage, uh, financing, construction, development, fix and flips, you know, typical single family stuff. And they were kind of that classic situation where they were earning big commission checks, but spending a lot of money to run the business and live their life. And in the end, they didn't really have much to show for it. It, I didn't, at least I didn't see it, that they weren't really building a bigger business or building long-term wealth. So it didn't really resonate with me, that sort of business. And growing up in Silicon Valley, uh, there was a zeitgeist and a push for tech. You know, my parents told me, don't do this real estate stuff, go into tech. That's where the big money is. So I went to school uh, for computer science at Carnegie Mellon, thinking that I would maybe join or start a startup or go into consulting. But I got the real estate bug uh, in college hmm. and started doing a ton of research, self-study, uh, reaching out to potential mentors, attending events, and sharing all this newfound knowledge that I was gaining about multifamily, right? Which is just basically going from single, from one to many. Hmm. and. When you do that, the business dynamics change a lot. When, you, when you're talking about commercial real estate of you know, 100, 200 unit properties, all of a sudden the math is different, the vision is different, the strategy is different. And that strategy, which is more long-term, more scalable, really resonated with me. Right. So I was really excited, went to my parents, said, oh my gosh, we need to be doing this multifamily thing. And they were open to it, but at the end of the day, they were too busy with their current business to really help me or partner with me or do anything too much on that side of things. So I was really fortunate to have met my business partner uh, who was in a similar situation where he was working uh, as a tax attorney and he was also interested in taking a more entrepreneurial step and going into multifamily. So we partnered up and started Lone Star Capital, which is the firm that we run today. And uh, it's been, it's been a great journey. That's awesome. So how did you, where and how did you meet your business partner? We actually met, of all places, at a real estate conference. Oh, wow. And we were connected through a mentorship group that we were in together. So we were both learning the business, and we were actually looking at some of the same deals, and we kind of just wanted to share notes at first. So it, was, it wasn't like we got together and said, all right, let's start this partnership, let's make this legit. It right. was, at first it was just, hey, let's have some phone calls, let's bounce ideas off each other, let's look at deals together, and... You know, after we got our first deal under contract, it kind of just solidified the relationship and made it serious where we both 
understood that, yeah, let's, right. it makes sense for us to make this official. So over bouncing off ideas between each other, it naturally kind of progressed into a business relationship. Yes, yes. And I know that, you know, reading over some of your questions and notes, you, you know, you had that topic of kind of dating right. in real estate, which I, I mentioned in, in interviews here and there. And it's the idea that the real estate business is very open and collaborative. Right. You know, people don't really have too many secrets in this business and partnering is very appropriate. And what I love about that is you don't have to lock yourself into a marriage necessarily and say, all right, well, we're partners and we're, we're in together. And if, and if we break up, it's right. a very messy breakup, right? If you decide to partner on a deal in real estate and you don't want to partner with that person again, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. Okay, got it. Um, and I, I like to ask this question to kind of understand where you got all this business sense from. So if you had to think back to the first time you remember selling something, what comes to mind? So what comes to mind is actually selling tomatoes by the pound okay. uh, in my, you know, on the street in front of my house. Uh, growing up, we had cherry tomatoes growing in the backyard that were super red, super ripe all the time. And you can go and get as many tomatoes as you were willing to pick. So kind of the way I was raised in my personality type is no stranger to hard work. So no problem going in the backyard and just picking tomatoes, right. weighing them by the pound, p putting them in bags and going out to the street and selling them. And I think it's a really interesting question because it really makes me think about my thought process, right. which really has stayed with me up until the last maybe four years, which is this idea that if I work really hard and I put something, a good product out there, people are going to want to buy it. Right. Exactly. The problem with that, that's not true. That's totally not true. If you don't have the right marketing and the right sales behind it, your product doesn't matter. True. You have, yes, you have to have a good product, but if you don't market it well, uh, it's not going to work. And so that was a myth or just a, a limiting belief that I had coming from my very logical brain, mm. you know, thinking, well, why do I, why should I have to sell myself? People, if I work hard, people should just know that what we're doing is good and they right. should want to work with us. And so uh, that is my first real memory of selling. And I, I mean, I think we did pretty well. People were buying, but I think if we would have approached it maybe in a, in a better way, we could have done a lot better. Right. Okay. So even if you have an amazing product, you still have to put yourself out there and sell it and still put yourself in front of people. Totally. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of my, one of my, the big parts of my journey is becoming disabused of the myth that if you find a good deal, the money will come. Right. That's how I approached going into the business. I was like, ah, raising money, you know, finding good partners, right. no big deal. I'll just focus on deals. I'm a deal guy and I'll, I'll make it happen. And so after our first couple of deals struggling to put it together, it really made me realize, oh, wow, this is actually a big myth. And I need to, my favorite phrase, dig the well before I'm thirsty. Right. Put in the work of building relationships and uh, prior to actually needing to raise money or needing a partner for different things. And that's, that's really important. Got it. Okay, great. And, and how did you initially learn the language of commercial real estate, the, learn the language of the business? I think I had some help from growing up in a real estate family and having some experience through that. I also, but, but by and large, just by j diving in and learning on the job. So I kind of was young, but I was willing to put myself out there and in a way fake it till I made it. Right. So I would talk to brokers, talk to lenders, you know, assume confidence that I belonged and that they should talk to me 
And that worked actually. And so I was able to get a lot of experience by talking to people in the industry and having them analyze my property for me and analyze my analysis and say, hey, you're looking at this wrong or if you tweak this number, you can uh, make the deal look more accurate. So I think just really diving in, see, I, I get a lot of people asking me questions like, what should I do before I start or how do I prepare? And I just really say, just if that's what you want to do, then you just need to go now. You start. And then yeah, you learn. start now. Got it. Understood. And um, so go, going back to your thing about um, dating and real estate. So how do you, how do you effectively do that and prevent yourself from getting screwed over? So they're almost two different things. I think, uh, Unfortunately, preventing yourself from getting screwed over is very tough. The way that you, I think the way that you best do that is to network fast, but make decisions slowly. Mm, okay. So, because at the end of the day, we can't control what other people do. Right. But if we take our time to get to know somebody and do our homework about their track record, their past relationships, that can go a long, long way. Mm -hmm to kind of vetting out a bad apple. Understood. Got it. Okay. Very interesting. And um, how, do you, how do you maintain a capital network? What, what, did, what do you do to maintain good relationships with your investors? Sure. So I'll approach that maybe in uh, two different buckets, right? Because first there's, I would say, kind of the more general public and potential investors, right? Because there's, that's a very big pool. And then the, there's the actual existing investors, mm -hmm. right? So first addressing the general network and potential investors, we do a lot to kind of stay top of mind and, and add value, right? This new economy that we're in is all about thought leadership and giving value. So we, for example, publish a monthly newsletter mm -hmm. where we have an article where we're, you know, have our thoughts about the market or just we're talking about some, some insight that we have about uh, commercial real estate. And that's really well received. People enjoy those. They share them around. Uh, we also are very active as far as making YouTube videos, hosting webinars, doing podcasts. So just creating thought leadership mm -hmm. goes a long, long way to establishing ourselves um, as, you know, someone to, to look up to, to connect with. And that helps with the general public to kind of stay top of mind. Now, as far as our existing investors, that's a bit more structured hmm. where we provide our investors monthly reports uh, via email where we provide the full financial package. We also provide just a quick update and just say, hey, here's what's going on. And here's your monthly distribution that we anticipate that, we send, that we're sending out now. And just keeping them updated with, with the progress on the business plan. So they, they hear from us every month on that. And then quarterly, we provide actually a full quarterly report where we do a more in-depth analysis. Every quarter, we actually benchmark the actual performance uh, of the property versus our acquisition pro forma. And I think that's really important for, for multiple reasons. Number one, it's extremely transparent. Hmm. And surprisingly, not a lot of people do it yeah. because it's scary. It's scary to benchmark yourself against your projections. It really shouldn't be scary, uh, but like I said, it's not as common as you would think. And I think actually what makes it so great is not only is it a chance for investors to evaluate the situation and really through a really clear lens see what's going on, but it also forces us to be more 
honest and uh, fair with with our projections, mm. right? Because if we know, if we in the back of our minds know that we're going to be benchmarked yeah. every single quarter, then it, you're held accountable. Yeah, it holds us accountable. So it really disincentivizes us to be super aggressive and right. overpromise to our investors, right? right? Because that is always a temptation for anyone in this business that deals with raising capital. Why not maybe push the numbers a little right. bit to make the numbers look better so you have an easier time raising money? The question is, do you want to have an easier time raising money and create headaches later? Or maybe be more honest or up fair yeah. up front. Maybe it's a little bit harder to raise capital because you're more realistic with your expectations. But then on the back end, you have a better chance of over-delivering. It's always, I'll lastly add, it's always frustrating to see a potential investor maybe walk away from one of our deals and say, well, you know, the guy down the street's offering a higher return. Right? And that, that's frustrating because are they actually offering a higher return right. or are they just tweak the numbers, tweaking yeah. the numbers, being a bit more aggressive? A hundred percent. Yeah. And um, how important is it to build and maintain this network of investors before finding a good deal? Well, yeah. So very interesting question. So I thought you were just going to say how important is it? I'd say super important. Right. But then you're couching it with, and you know, before you actually have a deal. Exactly. So I, it's really hard to actually build relationships without a real deal. So it's a little bit of a chicken or the egg, right? right? People don't want to invest with you if you don't have a deal, but if you don't have a deal, you, you can't really raise money, right? right? And it's like, how do you build a track record if people don't want to invest with you if you don't yeah. have a track record? Exactly. So the first deal is always the hardest and you just have to get over that hurdle by any means necessary. I always said when I was going through the first couple deals and really struggling and learning uh, a lot, I kept telling myself, it doesn't matter how much money I make on these deals. I would pay money to mm. do these deals. For the experience. For the experience and, and just getting the track record started. So if, if, you're, you know, if you're asking the question kind of to someone who's getting started, I would say that don't have this idea that you need to build up this big network before diving into your first deal. It, the first deal is going to be uncomfortable. Uh, yes, you should try to dig the well before you're thirsty and do as much as you can before you're actually under contract. But at the end of the day, you just have to jump in. Right. So do you think it's inevitable that the first deal is going to fail? So people should just assume that, just take it as a learning experience regardless of what the outcome is. I don't want to say fail. It just depends on what your definition of fail is, right? So for our first deal, I would say we succeeded, right? right? Because we got the deal closed. It was messy. We had to borrow money. We had to raise money after closing. Uh, we had to you know, call a million people to, to ask them to partner with us and help us. We had to give uh, pieces of our fees away and our upside away. So just to get the deal done. But like I said, I kept telling myself when I was giving pieces of our, you know, ownership and profit away, I was telling myself, it's fine. It's fine. Just get the deal done. So I consider that a big success, right. not a failure. Now, as we've gotten more experience and we're doing deals regularly, uh, I still think closing a deal is a success and I'm, and I'm all about a growth mindset, but I do look now kind of at how we're closing the deal more right. today and thinking, okay, well, how profitably are we closing this deal? Are we giving away the farm or are we able to earn our fees and not have to uh, give discounts? You know what I mean? So it's just an evolution. How do you balance keeping the fees sustainable for yourself and for your company and putting your investors kind of first as the as the clients. Yeah, it's a it's another great topic. I think I think that is pretty simply answered by doing what is market. Hmm. So 
on the one hand, you know, putting investors first is very important, but at the same time, that doesn't mean you should charge no fees right. and just give a sweetheart deal, right? And the reason why I say that is because that that may in theory sound good, but in reality, investors would would be skeptical about that. That yeah. would be weird. Of course. Right? So what I always preach about deal structure is you don't want your deal structure to stick out in a negative way. And in a way, you don't want it to stick out in a positive way either. Because if, hmm. if someone, if you know, if you have a deal and like I said, you have no fees, the investor's gonna be really skeptical and think, well, is this person not confident enough in themselves or their company that they need to offer discounts just to raise the money? Right. So I I like our deal structure to be favorable, but not not too too much. So that I think that's how you balance that that issue. And so our fee structure and, and deal structure is relatively market. Mm. And so what's in a, what's unique about us is we cater across the spectrum of sophistication when it comes to investors. You know, some firms they specialize in raising high net worth capital or retail investors, and then some specialize in more institutional investors. So we cover the spectrum. Got it. And uh, the way that we are able to do that is by taking the, the more sophisticated approach required for institutional capital, and then we apply that to our retail investors as well, you know, doctors, lawyers, tech, tech people. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's delicate because if they're not real estate professionals, it's hard to be sophisticated at that level. Right. But at the same time, they can trust us you know, to because they know that we work with those sophisticated investors, they can trust us, and and we also attract a more sophisticated investor because of that positioning, which is good or bad depending on how you look at it. Because right. if you attract less sophisticated investors, you could charge higher fees, you can get away with doing worse deals. So it's a there's a balance with everything. Understood. And uh, given that your returns are certainly above market, and you structure yourself in line with market, would you say that your strategy is to underpromise and overdeliver? Yes, that's definitely the goal. And it's it's not easy, like right. like we talked about earlier, because if you underpromise too much, well then everyone's gonna say, Well, your deal's not good enough. Right. There's right. a sweet spot. So you have to find that balance. Got it. Understood. And okay, so I wanna ask specific questions within real estate private equity. Um, what are some important considerations for someone investing in preferred equity um, as far as tax advantages and the senior subordinate uh, relationship? Yeah. Well that's an interesting question because preferred equity is for those that aren't familiar, it's a hybrid between debt and equity, yep. right? Legally, it's equity, but its structure far more resembles debt in that it earns a fixed rate retu- fixed rate of return. So, with that in mind, if it's debt or equity, right? Does it participate in the tax benefits that the equity participates in, or does it not because it's debt yep. and it's earning interest, yep. right? So, it it just depends on how the deal is structured. I'm familiar with companies that specialize in preferred equity investing. And I would say that most of them actually opt not to receive the depreciation or the tax benefits associated with the equity okay. position, right? Which is great for the common equity right. because now they get to soak up all the depreciation for themselves and they don't have to share it with their preferred equity right. partner. So that's ideal if you're the common equity. As a preferred equity investor though, I, I certainly, so we have actually lent preferred equity mm. in the past and we did take the tax benefits. Okay. Okay. I think it's kind of somewhat of an arm wrestle and just depending on the deal, depending on the wants, because the preferred equity investor may be set up as like a mortgage REIT, for yep. example. And therefore, 
they aren't really advantaged by taking those tax benefits. So, which is great. They don't need to take them. The common equity benefits, everybody wins. So hopefully that answers your yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, so you would adjust it based on every deal, the, the unique components of every deal. You wouldn't kind of have a blanket strategy for preferred equity tax advantages. If I'm lending preferred? Yeah. If I'm lending, I would uh, demand it. Okay. Got it. Yeah, because me and my investors are seeking those tax benefits, right? right? Okay, understood. And um, why would someone, um, so you've used this, these terms, multi-planche and uh, multi-class deal structure. Why would somebody prefer a multi-class deal structure versus a dual planche deal structure? And which strategy do you use in your investments? Yes, so it's actually a dual tranche, right? Just, just means two tranches. Uh, so they, the reason why those are often, why I brought those up together right. and you know, wrote an article about them together is because they kind of have similar terminology, right? In the dual tranche structure, there's a class A and a class B mm-hmm. uh, equity uh, tranches. And then in the multi-class, there's also a class A and a class B. So simply on the multi-class, it's just, it's a very simple setup where you have a, well, for our deal specifically, we have a class A tranche, mm-hmm. which is for any investors investing 100000 or up. And there's a certain deal structure associated with that class. Then for class B investors, the minimum investment is 500000 mm-hmm. But in exchange for the higher minimum, they get a more favorable deal structure. Right. So it's, it's really a simple way to kind of cater to different investors. It's kind of like a bulk discount, mm-hmm. right? Every, every business has some sort of uh, bulk discount, so it only makes sense that the private equity business has it as well. And, and it even goes beyond that, where we have plenty of investors that invest you know, a million and, and above, and we structure that as a side letter agreement, mm, okay. right? So it's not explicitly in the operating agreement, yeah. it's just a side letter, which affords them, you know, whatever they want, whatever the negotiation is, a discount on fees, a higher preferred return, better waterfall, uh, things like that. So there's lots of different ways to structure the deal, but the multi-class is just a way to kind of put it out there. Right. And one of my mentors just kind of, you know, says, hey, it doesn't hurt to put it in there. Yeah. And it gets people thinking, you never know what investor might go, hmm, 500, okay, right? Maybe they were only going to invest 200 or 250. And then they just want the, the the better deal. Now the dual tranche structure is is very different uh, because it actually has a senior subordinate relationship, uh, like we talked about with preferred yeah. equity. So just to to explain it, so we can talk about it, the class A in a dual tranche structure is basically preferred equity. So it earns a fixed rate of return, mm-hmm. and it is senior to the class B investors. And these days, it's probably it's probably changed recently, but Last I checked, uh, most deals were kind of doing somewhere around 9%, maybe 10% fixed rate of return paid monthly for the Class A investors. Class B investors are subordinate to that preferred payment of 9 to 10%, but then they get the residual cash flow and all of the upside. Mm-hmm. Right. So after the Class A investors, when, when the property is sold, the Class A investors get their return of capital, okay. but that's it. Now, the Class B investors, they participate in the waterfall and actually the profits on sale. The reason why this structure came about was it was kind of like three years ago about, and that was when the market was really heating up yeah. and deals were getting thinner and thinner, thinner. And when I mean thinner, I just mean the projected returns were coming down. And sponsors were looking for ways to engineer higher returns because all of our investors have been biased by strong performance. 
So when investors are getting checks back and they're going, oh, 20% return, 25% return, 30% return. Then when you go pitching them a 15, they go, oh, that's kind of light. So when you structure a class A, class B dual tranche, the class A investors can get their 9, 10% and they're happy because they're earning that on a monthly basis and stable income that's protected. The class B investors, what ends up happening is at that deal level, there's negative leverage because the project level cash flow might be, you know, 6%, 7% and the preferred the class A investors are getting paid 9 to 10. So that that negative leverage lowers the cash flow for class B investors. So they're maybe getting 3 to 4%, but they're okay taking that trade because they get all of the upside. Okay. So it's it's more of an equity growth strategy rather than a, a cash flow strategy. So the the dual tranche structure is an interesting way to kind of cater to different investors, right? Income-focused investor, growth-focused investor. The interesting thing about it also is the preferred preferred equity on the Class A is not third-party PREF, right? right? It's not being provided by a PREF lender where that person or that entity might be looking to foreclose and cause problems. Uh, Yes, the Class A investors are obligated to be paid first, but... If they're un, if they're not paid, it's not like there's going to be a removal of manager and default remedies and all right. sorts of stuff. So it's really friendly leverage. Uh, so I, I I have nothing but good things to say about it. But I know you're going to ask me this, but we never have done it actually. Okay. Uh, we stick to a more institutional, straightforward deal structure. Okay, understood. And so just to hammer on one of the points. So for example, a Class B investor investing into a multi-class versus a dual tranche. In a dual tranche strategy, he would be getting he or she would be getting more of the upside on uh, the deal doing exceptionally well versus in a multi-class. That's correct. Yeah. So in the multi-class, where if you're you know if you're a class B investor, you're right. getting a preferred deal structure. That doesn't mean you are senior or subordinate to anybody. Right. right? Everybody is what is called pari passu, which means I think it's Latin for equal footing or shoulder to shoulder. So, so pari, when, when two groups of uh, equity are pari pursue in a deal, that just means they earn returns at the same level. Right. So there's no subordination in that, whereas in the dual tranche structure, there is subordination. So if the deal performs exceptionally well, yes, they, they outperform. But if the deal underperforms, Got it. well, the A investors get paid first. Okay, understood, perfect. Um, so... How can a limited partner ask the right questions and conduct their due diligence correctly uh, in order to ensure that the investment will be fully passive throughout the life of the deal? Yeah, right. The goal of passive investors is to be passive. Right. So while it would be great for passive investors to take the time and underwrite the deal fully and do their due diligence and everything, that turns into a job that's no longer passive. So right. yeah, certainly the goal is to keep passive investing passive. And I think... Uh, a really efficient way to do that is to build relationships with sponsors that mm. you trust. And you don't need a million sponsors, right? You can make relationships with, I don't know, I would say up to, you know, up to five to 10 sponsors that you kind of trust. Right. You understand what their deal strategy is. You're comfortable with their deal structure. So it's only just a function of them having an opportunity that fits your criteria and your timing and and you make that investment. So that's kind of the front end due diligence or the way I would focus on right. deal sourcing. I, I still think you shouldn't 
close your eyes and trust the sponsor blindly, I think you should certainly peek behind the curtain, look at the numbers. Uh, so, and that's kind of in part why I wrote my first book mm-hmm. about multifamily underwriting, because I wanted to not just teach our entire underwriting process, but I also wanted to make underwriting more accessible right. to even passive investors. And that's why the book that we see here is, you know, about a hundred pages or so, uh, because I, I don't want to make it some crazy textbook that only the experts right. can do, right? Underwriting is, is accessible. It takes time to learn, but it's definitely worthwhile for LPs to be, uh, reasonably versed in it. So uh, yeah, I mean, just for them, uh, the, the questions to ask I would be would be about asking the sponsor to defend or pr- or, ju- or provide justification for their pro forma rents, mm-hmm. you know, through logical, straightforward rent comps. I uh, would also want to see potentially uh, expense comps and just say, okay, well, you're using X assumption for payroll or for accounting or, you know, general and admin what is the rule of thumb there and you know where okay. are you getting that number, yeah. right? So just getting kind of some support for the assumptions is a really good way to sanity test the numbers. Great. Okay. So perfect. So through the book, um, it's more geared, it's not even specifically geared to sponsors. It's more geared to the general landscape of the world of private equity so that everybody can understand exactly what they're getting into. That's the goal. Yeah. And I have some passive, I mean, certainly it's not a book for, for everybody. It's very technical and boring, but I do have passive investors that reach out to me and they say, oh, wow, this is really great. This is helpful. Love that. And, uh, and then also very experienced uh, sponsors and LPs uh, have also reached out. So yeah, it's been, it's been a big success more than I had anticipated. So I'm really thankful. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a, it's a great book. Um, and how do you, how do you derive your exit cap rate? We derive our exit cap rate by studying what the market cap rate is. So just to put some context on this, you know, your exit cap rate is the cap rate that you use to project your, mm-hmm. your sale on the back end. And what a lot of people do is they kind of use their entry cap rate as a way to justify or rationalize their exit cap rate. And there is some logic there, but it's, it's faulty uh, to a large extent. And the reason for that is because your entry cap is not necessarily the most accurate reflection of what yeah. the market cap is. And there's a reason for that, especially when you're buying not core property. Uh, because if you're buying a core asset, you're likely buying a core asset. And when you sell it, it's still probably a core asset. Right. Now, when you're buying, let's say, a value-add property, you're buying a value-add property, but what are you selling? You're you're unlikely going to be selling a deal that has as much upside as the one you're buying, yeah. right? Because you're buying something, you're going to fix it, and you're going to increase the NOI and the value, uh, but you're also limiting the meat on the bone for the right. next buyer. So they're going to need to buy it at a higher cap rate in order to justify their acquisition. So what you're buying and selling is fundamentally different. So you need to actually identify what the market cap rate is mm-hmm. of what you're going to sell. So the way that we do that is by keeping very good data on our acquisition pipeline. So every deal that we underwrite ends up in a spreadsheet called our trade tracker. And then we host a quarterly webinar where we're actually very transparent. We show that data across all the deals we analyze for that quarter. And so we, you know, we underwrite uh, somewhere between, I'd say, 500 to 800 deals per year. Okay. So we have a lot of data and we can see what the median cap rate is. We can see what the cap rate is based on different parameters. So we get a pretty good understanding of what 
the real market cap rate is. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we usually just add about 50 basis points yeah. to that number, and that's how we get to our exit cap rate. Understood. Yeah, so that, that was going to be my next, my next question. Uh, do you add a cushion? And 50 to 100 basis points is the average for across the board? Yeah, I would say, you know, we're not doing 100 as much anymore, mm-hmm. uh, especially in this new environment that we're in. I think uh, 50 is definitely more the rule of thumb for us on that. And okay. yeah, you, I think it's important to have uh, at least that cushion. Okay, 100%. Um, and what are some of your strategies to address drastic changes in a market cycle? And is it something for you prepare for in your underwriting? Yeah, implicitly it is. I mean, obviously none of us assumed that we would be where we are today. Right. Uh, this came as a shock to the vast majority of people, and that's just evidenced by the dramatic inaccuracy of the forward curve uh, of, of floating rates dating back to kind of earlier in the year. So that nobody could have really anticipated or prepared for, uh, or at least we didn't. Uh, but implicitly we are more prepared for it because naturally our underwriting is more conservative. Mm. So we are uh, not stretching as much on on price and, and rent projections and things like that. So just as an example, when we're, you know, some of the deals we bought are premised on rent increases mm. through, through renovations. And obviously we're hoping to be buying into a strong location where there's growth. So what's happened through this inflationary environment, which has positives and negatives, right? The negative of inflation is on the expense side and also much more acutely interest rates, right? Because now the Fed is responding with higher rates. So that's hurting on the floating rate debt. Uh, But the positive side of inflation is we've seen tremendous rent growth. So even if our expenses are going up, our rents are going up much faster. Right. And in many cases, actually, we're seeing our performer rents being achieved without even doing the full renovation mm. scope. So that's just how fast the rent is growing. And so that speaks to the strength of the market and the inflation, but also to the conservative projections of our underwriting, right? We weren't shooting for the moon as far as rent growth or, or, or rent increases from our renovations. So the fact that we're hitting them, it's uh, you know making our deals work in, in this difficult time. So I was actually analyzing the portfolio this morning and we're actually... Uh, above underwriting on an NOI basis across the entire portfolio. Mm. So again, I don't want to take credit for that. That's not just us because we're so amazing or so conservative, right? The market has been really strong. But when you're in a situation where you're, you know, up to 20% higher than your projected NOI, that gives you a cushion and puts you in a better position to withstand the challenges that we're dealing with today. Understood. And as far as uh, protecting yourself from the downside, you would protect yourself by having conservative underwriting in your in your performance models. Yes, that's certainly one way. Now, another way is debt. So I don't know if we want to shift the conversation to debt, but it's it's very on everyone's mind yeah, right now course, yeah. uh, with, with the changes in interest rates yeah. as, as well as the underwriting fundamentals, leverage points. So, you know, we had acquired a handful of properties with floating rate debt mm-hmm. prior to this interest rate regime change. Yep. And that has been uh, very difficult to deal with. You know, even if you are way above your pro- projections on NOI, I mean, we're still way behind on cash flow just because of the speed with which rates have risen and, uh, uh, you know, the unanticipated rise. So 
that's a little bit more of a complex discussion where we get into interest rate caps and their need for replacement caps and thinking about the future and things like that. Uh, because all of our floating rate loans are capped with a, with a hedge product called mm-hmm. interest rate cap. Uh, so we are in the money on all of those right now because rates are here, but our caps are down here. Oh, so right. we're being paid out. So we're paying essentially, we have essentially fixed rates okay. across our portfolio right now because we're in the money on all of our caps. Uh, so, And is this something you implemented um, in anticipation of something coming up in the future or is this something you implement regardless? No, to be honest, it was not because we anticipated right. it. It's just, it's, it's pretty standard practice. We work with our lenders on this and we, we had just, you know, Bought, bought these caps for the floating rate loans. Uh, but going through this period of time uh, already has been uh, very instructive and we're learning a lot of lessons. And so what I will say as far as not being conservative is high leverage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we uh, and many of our peers were uh, aggressively trying to buy deals and prices were going up and up and it was a, a very competitive time and debt was freely available and it was very cheap. So we were willing to take on higher leverage. A lot of people were also willing to take on higher leverage. And so now these floating rates <clears throat> are even uh, more acutely impacting mm-hmm. those sorts of deals. So if I, you know, if we're going back to our topic of kind of under-promising, over-delivering, and conservative underwriting, uh, you know, we've really come away from this experience kind of chastened and learned that, okay, it's maybe not worth it to maximize leverage right. for that extra uh, few points of return, right? It's better to have that downside protection. And then, you know, fixed rates are another complete conversation where, gosh, wouldn't it have just been so nice if we would have had fixed our yeah. rates a year ago? We would have looked like geniuses yeah. today. So it's, it's really tough, but we're learning. I understand. And so you, so you adjusted um, the way you um, run your comp- company operationally based on how the market has been going. Well, it's a good, it's a good question. So we have, uh, it's fluid right now and we're still in the process of kind of analyzing our business Mm -hmm. plans and looking at the situation. As I mentioned before, properties are performing really well and we're actually kind of achieving the business plan without spending all the money. So that begs the question, well, what do we do with that money? Right. Do we use them just to kind of fortify reserves? Do we go ahead and do the upgrades and try to get for even higher rents, which would be more of an aggressive play, right? The more defensive play would be to not rent, not upgrade and shoot for higher rents. So that's kind of where we are today and and thinking about pivoting and updating the scope of our business plans. And also planning for the future as far as where are rates going to go, right? Mm -hmm. We need to be protected and have contingencies for, uh, you know, stress, uh, you know, sensitivity analyses and stressing, uh, the downside scenarios. So yeah, I would say that's, that's where our focus is today as far as operations. Great. Understood. Okay. And I want to shift the, the focus of the conversation a little bit to more of the, the mindset it takes to succeed in this industry. Um, how did you learn the skills associated with being a leader? Is this something you were born with or did you develop this over time? I think that it was definitely innate to a large extent. Mm. Uh, because growing up, I had I always naturally gravitated towards leadership positions, uh, whether that be in the classroom or in sports. You know, I was a, a quarterback in high school, was team captain, and you know that was always where I felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I 
didn't mind being in a leadership position where the responsibility was with me. And when we won the game, I was the hero and it was my responsibility to share the limelight with right. everybody else. And when we lost, I win. was the, uh, you know, also responsible and not share the loss, right? Keep the blame with you. Yeah. But then when you succeed, share, share the praise. So I've always been kind of taught to think that way and, and have no problem with it. So I think that's, that's where it, it, it comes from. Great. And what do you think, what do you think makes a good leader? What do you think makes a good principal? Well, there's a, a whole lot there. Yeah, I'm definitely passionate about culture and teams and things like that. Uh, but with that being said, it's not like I like to get everybody together in the conference room and hold hands right. and kumbaya, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very kind of straightforward. So for me, I think it's finding the right balance of hierarchy versus meritocracy, Okay. right? Because there's a time and a place where the hierarchies have to be respected, mm -hmm. right? Like there's a boss, there's a, a subordinate and a, you know, and a chain of command. But at the same time, I'm also really big on like uh, borrowing from uh, Bridgewater, right? Radical openness, radical transparency. Right. Uh, they, you know, so, so we, we also believe in that to some extent, like I'm totally comfortable with it, our brand new analysts speaking up in an investment committee and voicing their opinion or asking a dumb question or anything, right? So I, I don't want to foster a, a stifled culture right. where people are scared of speaking their mind. So that I think is a, a big element of leadership for, for us. We're, we're very, I don't know, in a way casual. So yeah, I think that's, uh, that's important. So you want to maintain that element of authority while also encouraging people to grow and go out on and be independent thinkers as well. Yes. Yes. So I am big on delegation mm -hmm. and empowering people, right? So, cause if you micromanage somebody, yep. there's a lot of negatives with that. They can never really learn on their own and they also are robbed of their agency. So they're going to be less motivated. So uh, to borrow another term or a quote from Charlie Munger uh, and Berkshire, right? They, they delegate, I think I forget what he says, delegate to near abdication or something like that. Right. So I don't go that far, but I do, I'm comfortable with kind of putting something and say, this is yours, own it. Like, I don't, I'm not worried about you making a mistake. Right. Like, I think we have a culture where mistakes are okay to be made. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm not a perfectionist and I don't expect perfection because I know that it's better to be done than perfect. Yep. So that is, uh, that is our approach there. That's great advice. That's definitely something to consider. Um, what personality traits and what skill sets should someone, um, let's say they're in high school, what, what should they work on to prepare themselves for a career in real estate, private equity? Interesting. I would say that to best prepare, honestly, I would say that, uh, being a part of a team sport mm. might be the best thing that you could do Okay. because learning to work with a team is really important. And there's always a time and there's a time and a place to be a leader and there's a time and a place to be a follower right. and being comfortable in both of those roles is really important. So like on the one hand, I need to be, I need to have the courage and the resiliency to maybe sit on an uncomfortable call with an yeah. investor and maybe be a follower in that moment because I'm serving my investor and, and all that. 
And then the next moment, I need to be a leader to my team and you know, lead an investment committee or make strategic decisions you know, for the firm. So a team will, operating in a team will really teach that. So learning how to be dynamic in certain situations where you can kind of adjust based on the situation you're in. Yeah. Understood. Um, what skill set do you think is the most important in just for success in real estate private equity? Is it sales? Is it vision and analytical skills or a mix of everything? Well, it depends what part of the business you're in. So it's really hard to say because it requires all of those things. Right. If you are, and we can break it down, right? If you are on the- Let's say you're a sponsor. Right, no, well, but even within being a sponsor, you have kind of the acquisition side, you have the asset management side, you have the capital market mm-hmm. side. So starting with the acquisition side, it is a nice blend of analysis and people. Mm. Uh, because where do you get deals from? People, of course. right? So you have to build relationships. You have to manage those relationships. You have to manage expectations. You know, I was actually just talking to somebody this morning and they're asking me about kind of, you know, broker relationships and deal flow and what, what's like the secret. And there really is no secret. Anybody can pick up the phone and, and call up. But what, what is the, the game changer is as simple as doing what you say you're going to do. So we have built a reputation and a habit with our counterparties that if we, uh, if, if they send us a deal, we're going to provide timely feedback. Right. If we put in a bid, they know that we can perform on that mm-hmm. bid, right? They have experience with us. They know that we, we close. We, we, they know that we perform. So Keeping your word. Yeah, keeping your word. So that's also going back to like a team sport situation. You know, you're responsible. You have a responsibility to a team. Mm-hmm. You, you have uh, accountability with your, with your teammates. So that's similar on the acquisition side, right? It's a good mix of people, but then also there's uh, rigor in sort of the analysis and managing uh, the deal flow pipeline. There's mm. a lot of, of work there. So that requires a, a dynamic individual. And then on the capital market side, it's really, uh, especially when you're talking about raising capital, that is very much so sales and being organized to to manage the process and everything. So, you know, in private equity, Yes, we're sophisticated and, you know, some of the things are more complex and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I think most of us are smart enough to really get it. Right. So being the smartest math guy or, or being able to crunch numbers and run a model and all that is not going to make you a millionaire. Right. It's not, that's not the skill. So it definitely leans towards the people skills, whether you're managing people or you're in sales. So do you think uh, success within private equity comes down to taking constructive action over everybody else. What do you mean by constructive action? Like uh, doing things that let's say other people would be hesitant to do based on a lack of experience or something like that. Interesting. Yeah, there is an element of that. And in one form or another, you are selling, Mm -hmm. right? You're either selling yourself or the firm to uh, an owner Mm -hmm. or a broker uh, you're selling to investors, you're selling to lenders. So yeah, it is, there's sales across the board. And I think that holds true for any business. Right. Uh, at the end of the day, the core of every business is just sales and, and interpeople, uh, you know, people communication. Like for example, in a marketed process for, for a sale, mm-hmm. the broker is going to solicit bids. The best bids are going to be invited to a best and final round. And often the seller is going to interview 
the buyer. It's gonna it's on a buyer buyer interview call. So we actually have to get on a call with the seller and basically pitch the seller yeah. why we're the best buyer for the yeah. deal. And in the hot market, that is not easy, right? If you're the only bidder in a, in a tough market, then fine. But in a hot market, uh, you have to differentiate yourself. And at the end of the day, if all the prices are coming in at the same number, you have to find a way to stand out. So that, again, comes down to sales. Understood. Got it. Perfect. Um, so what is the secret to effective negotiation? So... I mean, yeah, negotiation is a deep topic. I, I study negotiation for sure. I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, one thought that comes to mind is having the understanding what the pictures in the other person's head are, mm-hmm. right? What are their motivations? What are their goals? And then solving for that and getting what you want through getting through them getting what they yep. want, right? Cliche, but win-win, yep. right? That's... I think that's one good fundamental thing to keep in mind. In our business specifically, just kind of trying to keep things grounded in reality and not start saying all these buzzwords about negotiation. But, you know, in our business, when we're negotiating price and terms and things like that, having experience, knowledge, data is so valuable because if you don't have those things, then you're negotiating in a black box. Right, and you don't really know what's good and what's bad. So that's the value of doing a lot of business and specifically being focused. Like for example, we only do business in Texas. Mm -hmm. So we have very local knowledge and experience and relationships. So we know what the property down the street sold for and we know who that owner is and who the buyer was and uh, we know the cap rates, we know the players and things like that. So that helps us negotiate because we're armed with data. Mm-hmm. So I would say that is a, is, is, is a big win for us. Interesting. And, and how would you say um, someone could build the skill set of understanding what another person wants? How can somebody build that up? It's funny. I, I, Does it just come down to psychology, understanding people, studying people always? Yeah, I think it comes down to a desire, mm-hmm. right? Keeping it top of mind and, and knowing. You yeah. know, w- one of my favorite books is Getting More by Professor Stuart Diamond. He's a negotiation professor at Wharton. Mm-hmm. And we actually had him come uh, to an event we hosted, like I think about t- yeah, two years ago now. And he did a, a workshop for us. So, so he's, he's awesome. His book is awesome. And nothing that he teaches in his book is complicated or even difficult right. to do. It's just, you actually have to do it. You have to think about it. 100%. Understood. Um, and I, I, I was watching a video where you were talking about the difference between operational value creation and capitalized value creation. How do you, how do you go about this in your strategies and do you blend the two together? Absolutely blend them together. So operational value creation, just to recap, is anything where you're able to increase NOI, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily result in increased value for the property. And then, but capitalized value is exactly that. It's value accretion to the property value, right? So the example that I think I gave in the video was, was a payroll synergies, right? So if, if you have two properties that are next to each other, or let's say nearby, right? I want to say they're down the street from each other. You might be able to get away with lower payroll costs because they're down the street from each other and you can uh, uh, more efficiently manage them with less 
staff. Yep. So that reduces payroll costs, which increases your NOI. However, let's say you sell one of those properties. That, that buyer is not necessarily going to benefit from the reduced payroll yeah. because they're only buying one of the properties and they have to operate it with a different payroll number. So in the end, you created operational value, not capitalized value. Now, if you can find a way to maybe sell the properties together and convince a buyer that they can lower payroll by owning them together, then maybe they actually are willing to pay you for it. Mm -hmm. And now you did create capitalized value. That is, uh, so that's the general concept. And like I said, we do both. You know, just because we do something that only creates operational value and not capitalized value doesn't mean it's not worth doing, right? You know, we, we own two properties we just closed on uh, that are right next door to each other. Bought them from different sellers and we're going to lower payroll. So that's, that's going to be a benefit. That's going to be fantastic. So we'll, we'll benefit from better cash flows. However, it remains to be seen whether they're going to benefit on a capitalized mm-hmm. value basis. Uh, since they are directly next door to each other, we can potentially sell them together and do that. But maybe just depending on, there's a lot of factors to determine whether or not it's most advantageous to sell them separately or together, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not always straightforward. It relates to the size of the property, the, the ages of the properties, um, the relative ease of which managing them together is. So those are all things to consider. But uh, And do you think it's always possible to find a blend between the two strategies? Or is sometimes there are situations where you can only use one approach versus the other? Yeah, sometimes there's only the opportunity for operational value. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully you can find ways to create Capitalized value, and we, I mean, it's, it's not like it's that hard either. I mean, something as simple as just renovating the interiors creates capitalized value. It does both, right? It adds income to the property because you're mm-hmm. raising rents, and then those higher rents result in a higher NOI, which result in a higher property value. Right. So it's not like it's rare to do, to do that. It's actually arguably more rare to find ways to add operational value, but not capitalized value. And... I think that's what's the the real lesson there is because it's more rare, people sometimes overlook mm. those things and assume that it creates capitalized okay. value when it doesn't. And that's where you create an issue for yourself where you get too aggressive without even necessarily realizing it. Understood. Got it. Um, and as far as institutional capital, how do you how do you attract and partner with institutional capital? Well, first it starts with a desire. Okay. A lot of people in our business don't want institutional capital because right or wrong, they think it's too difficult to deal with. They think that institutional investors are a headache, that they, you know, you and you can't get as much of, you can't get as high of fees. You can't, you don't get as favorable of a promote structure. It's more rigid. It's more challenging. So the first has to start with a desire. You have to say, I want to raise institutional capital and be very clear on it. And then the next step is, okay, if that is true, then now you need to take the effort required to position yourself as worthy of institutional mm. capital. And that entails having a track record. It's, I mean, with, with everything, it's better to have a track record than not. But at the same time, don't be discouraged and not try to build relationships with institutional capital just because you don't have a 20-year track record, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we were very fortunate to get some very good partners very early on just through persistence and and asking and working on it right 
So the other ways that you need to, the other things you need to do to be institutional ready are uh, having a focused strategy. The reality is institutional investors want to leverage your focus mm -hmm. because they might be a $500 million private equity firm sitting in New York and they invest across the country. Right. Well, they have the luxury of picking whatever partner they want. So why would they pick a partner that just dabbles across all these different markets right. when they could pick hyper-local partners Local in all the markets they yeah. want to be in, right? So focus is going to absolutely help in institutional capital partnerships. Similarly, being vertically integrated with mm -hmm. your operations, such as having property management and construction management in-house like we do, is, is a huge bonus as well. Again, it's all about them wanting to leverage your expertise. Mm -hmm. We couldn't have in-house property management and construction if we own properties in Denver, Phoenix, Atlanta, right. Houston, right? So focus helps on, on both of those fronts. Then the last thing I would say is uh, communication. No institutional investor is going to put up with your reporting if it's, you know, inconsistent, haphazard. Right. It just needs to be institutional quality, right? It has to be on point. It has to be on point. So I would say those are the, the three keys. Understood. And would you say that, so institutional um, investors have a preference for local sponsors who are kind of industry leaders within their specific property type or submarket? Totally, totally. And they, and they have loyalty as well. Right. They want, just as much as you want to find a good partner yep. to consistently do deals with, that's exactly what they want too. They don't want to be spending all their time diligencing new yep. partners. They want to leverage that diligence across deal after deal after deal. And like I said, they're loyal. So if they find a partner that they like in Dallas, they want to stick with that partner and do deals with them in Dallas. Right. And uh, we actually have, I mean, we've seen that work both ways in our portfolio where we have an investor who is, is a big investor with us. And, you know, since we cover uh, Texas, you know, they basically told us, hey, we don't invest. We're not going to look at anybody else's deals if they're in Texas. Mm. You know, you're our Texas people and that's who we trust. That's who we work with. I mean, that's a, a huge compliment, huge vote of confidence, right? Conversely, we have a, a, a great potential investor, and it's a, it's a large private equity firm based out of Florida. And we've been building a relationship with them for a long time. They seem like great people. They like us a lot. But the reality is they already have a Texas partner yeah. that they've done tons of deals with. And frankly, when I share deals with them, they go, yeah, this one looks pretty interesting. But at the end of the day, it has to be so much better than the other Texas deals that we're seeing from our existing partner. So that's a struggle. Right. Okay. And uh, when should a sponsor avoid an institutional partner? Um, because sometimes sponsors are incentivized uh, through the waterfall structure to sell the assets quickly and monetize or promote. Yeah, that's correct. So you're going to see less flexibility in your waterfall mm -hmm. when it comes to institutional investors. With institutional investors, you're pretty much looking at an 8 to 10% pref with a starting hurdle of about 20% promote, then it can kind of go up 30 40% at subsequent tiers. And that, that preferred return is always subject to return of capital. So when you have a preferred return, which is subordinate, I'm sorry, when you have a promote that is subordinate to return of capital, 
that incentivizes the sponsor to sell, mm -hmm. right? The sponsor's not going to make any promote until they sell the asset, return the capital, hit the pref, and then waterfall. So if you are a sponsor that is incentivized to hold, not incentivized, if you are a sponsor that is desirous of holding long-term, mm -hmm. by and large, kind of the typical preferred, uh, sorry, the typical institutional equity partners are not going to be Would a good work. fit for you. Yeah, yeah it's, you're just going to be sitting on this paper promote yeah. and not able to monetize it. So it's tough. It's tough to, to find the right structure that works. There's certainly groups out there that do it and they partner with retail investors. They have a cash flow promote and they can get by that way and they're happy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can also do something more complicated like promote crystallization, which we've never personally done, but I, I find it to be a very interesting strategy that I plan to implement eventually. Uh, I don't really want to get into all that, but it is covered in my new yeah. book. So people are welcome to check that out. Yeah. My last question, Rob, for you. Um, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self about um, life, business, and relationships? Well, I was very stubborn. Like I said from the very beginning, kind of about my uh, tomato selling days. I expected if I worked hard and had a good product, it should all work out. Right. But it's, uh, I, I would, the advice I would give to my 18-year-old self would be to put myself out there more, build relationships, and uh, not be afraid. You know, in my brain, I don't know about yours, but in my brain, the, the word selling and sales is kind of like a dirty word. Mm. And that's how I just grew up. That's just how I felt. And uh, the reality of, of sales is it's not a dirty word and it's not a, a bad thing mm -hmm. to, to sell yourself or to sell your company or whatever it is that you're doing. You know, the, at the end of the day, that's what we all do. We're here selling. And if you believe that what you're offering is good, then you shouldn't have any problems with selling. I think selling where people have struggle with it is when they don't believe in the product right. or service and it kind of eats at their soul uh, to, be, to be selling something they don't believe in. 100%. Rob, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, and I want to give another quick shout out uh, to the Rob's two books on underwriting and building the capital stack. Um, if you're looking for a straightforward walkthrough of exactly how to navigate deals, look no further than the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisitions and structuring and raising uh, debt and equity for real estate. Rob, where can people find these books? You can check them out on Amazon. Also, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but we are building out uh, websites for each book as well. So they'll be able to buy, you'll be able to buy them directly from us at a little cheaper price than Amazon. Uh, so you can look out for those. That'll be at underwritingmultifamily.com as well as structuringandraising.com. I'll go ahead and put the link to the link, link in the bottom of this video. Rob, thank you so much again. Really appreciate it. This has been great. My pleasure.